Welcome to episode 12 of the Alec Hogg Show, a long-form audio biography where we delve into the lives of interesting South Africans. Our guest in this episode is Bobby Godsell. Now 68 years old, Godsell has played a leading role in South African society over many decades. An unlikely corporate executive, he worked from within the system, initially under the mentorship of the legendary Harry Oppenheimer, to hasten change and propagate a message of tolerance, perspective and nationhood. What's coming up is a rare window into the life of a man who has shunned the media spotlight for over a dozen years. But behind the scenes, this brilliant son of a migrant artisan, a matriculant of Durban's unfashionable Grosvenor High School, continues beavering away in the classic liberal manner by quietly changing hearts and opening eyes. It's an uplifting story of a mature human being, that most rare example of our species with predictably a message of hope it's really such a pleasure to see bobby godsell again you've been out of the spotlight mm, for over, <laughs> over a decade but during the time in the spotlight, we did speak a lot over a, an extended period, but I never realized you were born in Boxburg. <laughs> yes, well, it's a good place to be born. <laughs> well, I'm glad you say that because we had Chris Hart here. When I asked him where he came from, and it was Boxburg, he whispered the name. <laughs> no, no, this is where the Rand Rebellion began. Uh, the Rand Rebellion began with uh, sort of minor and Afrikaner commandos wanting to get somebody out of jail. I and mean, this is, sounds a bit familiar <laughs> with Sienekal, huh? So, uh, and they, so they attacked the Boxburg prison to, to get one of the strike leaders out of jail. And that's where the thing began. And then they marched on the, on, the, on the RAND Club, I'm pleased to say, and took over it. So for, for a couple of weeks, the RAND Club was the headquarters of the RAND Rebellion. And the resident members had to flee to the Victoria Club in Peter Marisburg. Was that 1920s? 22. Cheapers, your knowledge of history of South Africa, I suppose, would have been shaped not just by your upbringing, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but by the work you did, by the, the role you had at, at what was then the biggest company in South Africa, Anglo-American. Yeah, sure. Look, I just, you know, I've had an incredibly fortunate career of just being interested in the right things at the right time and in the right place. And, uh, you know, I, uh, at, at university, my intention was not to join the corporate world, but then a very close friend, uh, somebody who was for me a, a mentor and a, an icon, I guess, uh, Alec Borain, then president of the Methodist Church, was hired by uh, Harry Oppenheimer, I think very presciently, I mean, this in, I think, 1972, to think about the role of business in a changing South Africa. Do you know, I used to say to people in the first five years, at any rate, I didn't join Anglo, I joined Alec Borain. He unfortunately left very soon after I <laughs> arrived to go off into Parliament, which he did in 1974. And he still played a huge role in South Africa. Yes, indeed. But we are cursed with our problems and blessed with our people. 
You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Though I'm very happy to have been born in Boxburg, I moved at the age of three, so I have virtually no memories, almost no memories of the place. My father was a tool and die maker, an artisan, and he went where artisanal work took him. So he went to Durban to build the Sap Ref Refinery. <laughs> History is a funny thing. So here this now very old refinery and somewhat stranded refinery is what took our family to, to Durban. He subsequently went to help construct Sasselberg. So you know, it's interesting that his life took him to some of the major industrial institutions, fortresses, if you like, of our economy. And you with him to Sasselberg? No, he was a migrant worker. He worked in Sasselberg during weeks and would come home basically, as I recall, uh, sort of once a month making, that, uh, making the trip. I grew up with, with, with a father as a migrant worker. That was also you know, a good part of South African history. Did you also grow up with a social conscience? Yeah, well, yes, uh, indeed. Look, you know, who knows what cause, causes what in, in this life? But, you know, I was incredibly blessed with my parents, who, in fact, were English and grew up in England. It so happens that my mother was actually born in South Africa. She was, <laughs> her father was a mine manager for both De Beers and the mining industry. Uh, but she went back to England at, at the age of three. So she, to all intents and purposes, was English. And they emigrated from, Brit- from Britain in 1947. The family mythology that was passed down to all of us was that they had lived through two world wars and a Great Depression, which is a slight stretch, by the way. <laughs> and they wanted to go somewhere to raise their children in peace and without conflict. And they had the choice of Canada, where my father had previously uh, emigrated, or South Africa. And I'm so immensely glad that they did. But what they brought with them is a set of values, a set of values about people, about society, about truth, about human beings. A distinct memory of my mother was her dislike of the wartime movie Mrs. Miniver, which she simply rejected as wartime propaganda, which I think gave a sort of healthy social conscience that having lived through the war, and my father during the war built Spitfires at the Spitfire factory, first in Manchester and then in the south of England. So they'd, they'd, they'd endured the war, but she was able to see through that intense partisanship and to see that movie as presenting sort of, I don't know, English is good and Germans is bad. And I think that's a core value that I had from our family. Then I was very lucky with teachers at school, as we all are. Uh, Not all of them, by the way, a a handful. And I came across the young Christian workers uh, in my school. Uh, This is essentially a youth trade union started by somebody who became a cardinal. He was initially simply a priest. Cardinal Cardine in Belgium to look after the working needs of young Catholic people in Belgium. And this was a multiracial movement in South Africa. It was a movement with a very, very strong social consciousness. Uh, I mean, it it has very distinguished people, including Trevor Manuel, as part of its sort of graduates working through that. uh, Rob Robertson, uh, anyway, a number of of, of very important people in the trade union movement uh, who came through young Christian workers. So that was another important source. What this 
reminds me of is, is uh, Pumzile Nhlambo, our first woman deputy president, made the observation, uh, she made it to me, but I'm sure she made it to many people, that in order to understand somebody, you should become aware of the institutions that have been important in their life. In her case, this was particularly the YWCA, <laughs> in which she was active for a large part of her life, including, incidentally, working for that organization globally, uh, which is based in Geneva, and which, oddly enough, I mean, the YMCA and the YWCA is apparently very dominated by men, which she found to be somewhat ironic and, I'm sure, very irritating. But, you know, I, I think we get, we get values, we get structure, we get habits through those kinds of institutions. For me, the Methodist Church was very important, the Methodist uh, youth movement, Methodist people like Alec Burain and others. Peter uh, Story? Yes, indeed. Peter Story was more Johannesburg-based. My, my in encounter was in Durban. I mean, I, I remember a very important minister, Arnold Walker, uh, who, after the first political campaign that I fought for the Progressive Party, I mean, I, I joined the Progressive Party at the age of 16. And, um, you know, the, the Progressive Party, like many liberals around the world, we had the best ideas, the best candidates, the best songs, had the best meetings, and lost all the elections by <laughs> a, a mile. And I remember him asking, how did the election go? And I said, well, we didn't win. He said, no, but you fought the fight. <laughs> and again, that's the value of having things that are important to you other than simply success. I think it's an important value. What pushed you towards the arts then, if you were already politically aware at the age of 16 uh, to uh, go and study? Uh, yeah, look, you know, it, it's so interesting when you reflect on your life, particularly at this stage of my life, you realize how powerful serendipity uh, is. You know, I'd initially, and I think this is a very common trait amongst young people, by the way, in the old Standard 8 or grade 10, I was determined to go into the church and become a, a Methodist minister. That was what I wanted to do. And indeed, I took biblical studies as a, as a matric subject, and I got a, a lay preacher's note uh, from the Methodist church, and I was very active in the church. By standard nine, I started to think about uh, politics. And, you know, at that time, if you wanted to go into politics, the logical thing to go for a, a vocation or career was, in fact, law. So I was intending to, to study law, and I, I pretty much signed up for part-time law studies. You could become a lawyer part-time, with nighttime classes, by the way. And why countries like South Africa don't return to nighttime <laughs> classes so people can study and earn at the same time, and we don't have this massive financial barrier, which is still there, even, and even acutely with COVID, on online uh, learning. But then I decided, look, let me rather go and do a bachelor's degree. I battled like crazy with Latin. I'd taken it as a school subject and I'd barely passed. And with the university, it was just beyond me. And so that turned me off law. Then I became interested in philosophy and sociology. And it was only really late in my third year of study that I asked myself, what on earth do sociologists do other than become academics, which was not particularly of interest to me, but then there was Bahrain, who'd gone, gone off into the corporate world to be in the corporate world, but to be there in a different way, not to be there in the conventional sort of executive way. You've spent a lot of time with the Oppenheimers. You still yeah. serve on, on the Harry Oppenheimer 
Yeah, in uh, fact, I've just retired, but I, I, I've been on it for the best part of 35 years. Yeah, so. I had you in 1987. Yes, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Harry himself presumably would have shaped your thoughts thereafter, but how did he influence Bahrain? Because if, if he's saying to Bahrain, go out and help me to, to have businesses roll in the future South Africa, so he was very far-sighted in that regard. How did he lose Bahrain on the one hand, and, yeah. and how did he find you? I'm nervous uh, about people who are very emphatic ideologues who believe that structure determines everything. I mean, you find this, uh, incidentally, across the spectrum, you find free marketeers who are so emphatically in love with the market as it's descended from the heaven and is perfect. You find it in Marxists. You find it in nationalists, uh, Afrikaner nationalists and African nationalists. The nice thing is that, that, that human beings, generally speaking, defy those neat lines Ernest Oppenheimer was the founding entrepreneur of Anglo-American, arriving in South Africa in 1903 uh, as a young German Jew who'd spent a few years in London en route to Kimberley to learn about valuing and buying diamonds, which is a key part of his family's trade, actually. He then built Anglo-American and De Beers. Harry Oppenheimer was a hugely uh, strategically wise business person But he was from day one, I mean, to use an old-fashioned phrase, he wanted to be a business statesman. He wanted to be a leader in society who made money rather than the other way uh, around. Uh, For for him, the the, the business project was never, it was never, by the way, about the share price, which he hardly ever looked at. It wasn't about market capitalization. (laughs) It wasn't about profit margins. It was about creating value. That is, I mean, getting more out than you put in. But it was also doing it in a way, and this is the famous words of Ernest Oppenheimer, that makes a real and, and permanent contribution to society. So he was as interested in society as he was in business. He was also profoundly interested in young people. And then a, a formative experience for him was the Second World War because he you know, volunteered. I mean, 250,000 white South Africans volunteered <laughs> to fight in a war that deeply divided South Africa because many Afrikaner nationalists saw it as the enemy's war. I mean, after all, it was a short time, one generation since the South African war. He signed up, he volunteered, he he went to North Africa, and there he came across a range of people who certainly were outside of the Johannesburg elite magic uh, circle. And uh, he persuaded many of them. I mean, Salem Alon, incidentally, was one of them, the, the great fighter pilot. He persuaded many of them to come and and work at Anglo. So prior to, to Alec Burain was somebody like W.D. Wilson, who carried the title managing director of Anglo-American. I'm not sure that anybody really understood what that title meant. But W.D. Wilson was the, was the author of deep thoughts about non-racialism and fairness, about wage policy. He, you know, <laughs> Wilson thought that wages should be fair, not simply what the market would bear. Uh, this, is, this, incidentally, was a conflict between Anglo-American and Goldfields for all of my Anglo-American uh, life. So, the, you know, Oppenheimer liked people with ide- ideas. He, he was emphatically a liberal in the best sense, in the 19th century English sense of the word uh, liberal. He also was very interested in young people, and he gave young people the space to be precocious, to take risks, to be pompous, um, and in, encourage them uh, to do so. To be pompous? 
Yeah. What I learned very early on was both the importance but the danger of the written word. So shortly after I joined, there was a major strike in De Beers. And at a lunch, I expressed pompous views about how the strike had been badly handled. He invited me to go study the strike and to write a note about the strike. I wrote an absolutely you know, terribly critical note about the, <laughs> the handling. Uh, and I, I was then sent to Kimberley to defend the note. Uh, I flew in to, to, to be not met by anybody from the company. That was the first bad sign. And then to be paraded uh, in front of the De Beers management uh, and asked by the the general manager of Tobias, why did I want to destroy his career? Yeah. So you you learned that you had to live with your pomposity and your convictions and your beliefs. It was a, a huge opportunity for young people. He also tapped uh, quite a few of the brightest minds from Oxford and Cambridge. It's oh, indeed. You, you know, the, the standard recruitment mechanism, which did not apply to me, was to go and see people towards the end of their time in Oxford or Cambridge. South Africans who'd gone from here. And, you know, after all, I mean, there's a solid source, part of which is hugely competitive. There are, however, dedicated road scholarships for particular schools in South Africa. So there is a, always a pool. And, yes, you know, he, he certainly was not looking for mining engineers nor for CAs but broadly speaking, for looking for people who'd done PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics at, uh, at Oxford. And, you know, if, if it wasn't Oxford where he himself went for a PPE undergraduate degree, then, then Cambridge was a sort of barely acceptable second best. And among them was, uh, was a man who turned out to be a good pal of yours, Clem Sunter? Of course, yes, we shared an office. Um, this was the day where 44 Main Street was absolutely full, sadly not anymore, um, and office space was at a premium. Uh, you know, what was fun was that Clem's orientation, it's a lovely Afrikaans word, neiging, by the way, inclination in philosophy was what I would call English crossword puzzle philosophy, uh, the philosophy of Bertrand Russell and, and the likes, and Wittgenstein, that good Englishman. I'd been schooled at Natal University in a, a European tradition, uh, much more interesting, existentialism uh, and Camus and Sartre and the Heidegger and the likes of, of those. So we, we, we spent the first, I don't know, several years mainly arguing about philosophy. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Have you read Anthony Butler's biography on Cyril Ramaphosa? Yes, I have. You feature prominently. Yes, throughout. interestingly. <laughs> but, yes. but he makes the point that at head office, you had one type of person. Yeah, of course. And on the minds themselves, a very different yeah. human being. This is true. I, I don't think this is unique. At the risk of sounding defensive, I would say exactly the same was true of NUM. So it was much easier for the head office people at Anglo to have breakfast with the head office people at NUM at the Carlton Hotel in the Coffee House restaurant and settle a wage strike than it was to have that deal carried at mass meetings on the mines with NUM membership, or indeed with mine managers who, who, who thought that the people in 44 Main Street were crazy liberals. And too soft. Of course, way too soft. And did you have many direct conflicts as a result of that? Oh yes, uh, indeed. You know, so 
If you take the, the completely climactic event, the, the 1987 strike, which remains the biggest industrial strike in South Africa uh, in our history, you know, eventually it was clear. It was a three-week strike. It was a trial of strength strike. Um, in the end, Anglo fired 50,000 people, which was the largest mass dismissal in South African history and maybe beyond South Africa. Um, the strike had to end, and so there was a, a negotiation to end the strike. There was a, an agreement <laughs> in that negotiation that essentially involved offering to rehire people who'd been retrenched, which was widely not observed by the mines, because they did the rehiring, and the rehiring was not done from head office. And that led to further conflict and to an arbitration that had to resolve the difference between the written word and the lived practice of rehiring workers. I had a chat once with Peter Monk. Yes. Uh, one, uh, the man who, who I think founded Barrick. Yes, which Barrick. Now and he said to me he really tried hard yes. to get you to leave the country. Yes. To go and work for him somewhere else in the world. Yes. And yet you yes. stayed. You never left South Africa. And yes. even, even with a small bit of conversation we've had this far, yes. your love for this country shines through very strongly. Why didn't you take that Well, well let me just pause with Peter Monk, by the way. And, and that's why, again, you know, I'm nervous of ideologies that reduce human beings to black hats or white hats. Uh, I mean, Peter Monk could not have been more different from Harry Oppenheimer. Uh, he was brash and forthright and a bully, uh, and Harry Oppenheimer was polite and uh, uh, very seldom told people what to do, although he was in the end Harry Oppenheimer, so you might take a hint. They couldn't be more different people. Interestingly, that, that they shared <laughs> two uh, at least very important trays. They were both European Jewish emigres to their countries, the one being South Africa, the other being Canada. So for Peter Monk, Canada had been a refuge from um, a hugely oppressive communism laced with anti-Semitism. Uh, now, Peter Monk, again, you know, wanted to build businesses and make money. He was, in the first instance, really a property person. His uh, getting involved in American Barrick, as it was initially called, was a, almost a, a, side, uh, a side interest. But it was this vision of the, the economy being integrated in society and indeed in politics and indeed in morality that really interested him. So indeed, you know, he, he twice tried to get me to, to come and actually run Barrick. That was the, that was the, the offer, which from uh, was a big offer. And how? <laughs> flew to Toronto <laughs> to have dinner with him for one night. I flew on the second occasion when he invited me again. I flew to Budapest to have breakfast, which I thought was a very exotic thing to do, a very James Bond sort of thing to do. But yes, look, you know, my life for me, business, society, and politics was business, society, and politics in South Africa. South Africa is what made sense to me. This is where my network was. This is where my values had been uh, developed. And that's where I wanted to, to, to be. It was, a, it was not a difficult choice at all. When 
Angler Gold was spun off. Now, we are skipping forward a bit yeah. because you ran the, uh, the gold division at, yeah, for a few at, years, uh, yeah. at Anglo American, the biggest gold miner in the world at yes. the time. Seven and a half million ounces, by the way. It's good to remember that. Sure. Well, compared <laughs> with uh, today? Yes. Oh, yes. I, so under three, yeah. And then your domain was spun off as a separate entity, Angler Gold Ashanti. Yes. You could have gone anywhere in the world, in yes. fact, to have your head office, and you decided 11 Diagonal Street, downtown Joburg. Absolutely. And subsequent to that, we, we uh, I mean, in, in a sort of rework way, by the way, we built a new head office in Turbine Hall uh, in Newtown. So we wanted to be uh, in the city and of the city. Why? Well, you know, apart from anything else, we, we did a survey of where our workers lived. <laughs> and the easiest, if you wanted one taxi ride from where they lived, then the center of town was the place to be. Santon was two taxi rides <laughs> there and back. You know, our vision, even then, and we're talking about 1998, the, the, the grade was depleting in South Africa, and the ore body was becoming exhausted, particularly the very high grade. More accessible parts of the ore body were, were exhausted here. So we needed to move out of the Witwatersrand Basin gold mineralization field. We wanted to be a global gold player, but we wanted to be a South African global gold player. Uh, and look, other companies had that aspiration. South African breweries had that aspiration and executed it really quite well. It's my great sadness that though that might have been an aspiration on the part of Anglo moving to London, it didn't work out that way. Or neither for Anglo Gold today. Indeed. Also, the, the good thing about getting old is you've got to accept <laughs> that not everything you try will succeed and probably, probably should not succeed. So, you know, I, I, I also I want to live forward, not, not backwards. So I, I don't for a moment criticize the people who took over from me at Anglo Gold for any of the decisions that they've made. I'm not sitting in their shoes. You've got to deal with the realities as you find them. I mean, ironically, uh, Anglo Gold in production terms is still a predominantly African producer. And actually, it makes sense to maintain their head office here in Johannesburg. I mean, you just look at cost and convenience. Uh, if you were to move that kind of head office that's servicing mainly African mines to London, you'd have, a, you know, not just a, a cost disadvantage. You'd have a, I don't know, mental consciousness disadvantage. <laughs> but even just from costs as an aside, that's got to be a huge opportunity for companies into the future is to outsource back home. It's yes. almost like these South African companies have globalized, but yes. they're picking up UK costs or American costs, whereas yes. the costs here are a lot lower. It's not just costs, by the way. I mean, Britain has no minister of mines, neither does the United States. I don't think Canada does, actually. <laughs> um, we're a continent that is still involved in primary economic activity, agriculture and mining. I think you want to get up in the morning and, and drive into downtown Johannesburg if you're going to be run a, running an African mining company. I think it helps to live here. You were succeeded at Anglo Gold by Mark Curifani, yep. an Australian, who yep. then went on to, as we know today, as the CEO of Anglo American yep. itself. Yeah. Did you help select? No, not at all. I don't have too many rules in my life, but, you know, firstly, I hate long goodbyes. You know, I think the idea that you've been the CEO and you stay on the board or you've been the CEO and you help shape your successor is, it's not just pompous, it's impertinent and futile and dangerous. 
So I had absolutely nothing to do. I mean, Mark, once he'd been chosen, interviewed me and uh, talked to me about the, the kind of CEO I had been. I left him, I, I think, about 150 pages of notes on all sorts of things, which I, I suspect he never read. But, but you know, when the, when the king is dead, you, you hail the new king and you go with the new leader. And uh, he did a good job. And from there, you, you had a bit of controversy in your life, which was, I suppose, not, not unusual for you. You went through a, 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 a very interesting uh, business career. But when you went to Eskom and then yes. left thereafter. Yes, yes. Yes. Look, you know, the, the, here is an element of sadness because I was in, immensely <laughs> surprised. I mean, w- when we had the, the huge load shedding in January, February and March of 2008, being, uh, I, I, think, I think there was a journalist, not you, Alec, who once described me as loquacious, <laughs> which I thought was not true but harsh. I offered Alec Irwin, the Minister of Public Enterprises, all sorts of ideas about how Eskom could and should be fixed. His response was to propose me as chairman uh, of the board. It came as a great surprise. Look, it was pretty controversial because we were already into a regime change. Uh, this was post Polokwane, so we had a president who was not the president of the ANC, was presiding over a cabinet that had to decide on my, uh, uh, and indeed my appointment was controversial. What I found in Eskom was like the very best of the old South African gold mining industry. I mean, here was the ninth largest power utility in the world, having designed, eh, not not just built, designed the six-pack, six times 800 megawatt, uh, the largest coal-fired power stations in the world, and built them, uh, running a grid that had an installed capacity, and still does, of about 42,000 megawatts. I mean, it was absolutely world-class, and it worked. I joined a board that was stunning. Uh, it had some very prominent uh, South Africans uh, with an v- incredibly good race and gender mix. We had three international board members who were the, the former head of the Swedish power utility, the former head of the South Korean power utility, and the current head of the Rwandan power utility. And they brought great wisdom about how a power utility <laughs> has to fend off political interference and the very nature of, of utilities where you, in a sense, run almost like a cash business. A regret that I have at that, that time is that a, a pretty newly installed CEO and I as the chairman, our chemistry just didn't work. And it was not just with me. I mean, uh, over a period of the 15 months that I was there, there was just a, a, a growing chasm between the board and what the board wanted to do and the, the CEO. You, you know, what elegant language would, would be used now to talk about a, a difference of strategic objectives. There, there was incidentally, uh, in my experience, absolutely no suggestion of anything uh, underhand or any attempt at corruption or self-enrichment. What was true is that uh, I think the CEO felt that he really reported to the ANC and its president rather than to his board. 
<laughs> and it was that conflict that in the end um, made, interestingly, both his situation and my situation un untenable. And there was a need to move on between the two personalities. And when you did move on from there, given the furore that it had all caused, given the racial background in South Africa, yeah. did that encourage you to stay under the radar? Not at all. No, look, you know, I was moving to, in, into that, I don't know, second, third, fourth part of my life. So I, I actually uh, moved into some board roles. I chaired the Barlow World Paint Company called Free World. I chaired a black-empowered coal company called Optimum Collieries, which has since become very distinguished in the Gupta uh, and uh, I became very active in Business Leadership South Africa, which is what the South African Foundation decided to change itself into. That was absolutely fascinating because that was a real nexus. I mean, we had some excellent younger black uh, executives and it was the question of how you play your cards in South African politics, not as, uh, as a kind of business desk of the African National Congress, nor indeed as a business desk of the Democratic Alliance. But is there an independent and, and meaningful and constructive voice that business can raise qua business, not a, a attempting to be something else? And, you know, I, would, I think I did that for five years. It was, it, was, it was great. Did it achieve that objective? Well, you know, people will have different views about this. We didn't as, a, as an organization, go into the streets and demand the resignation of Jacob Zuma. And we, we took that as a conscious policy. And I got very severely criticized as the chairman. And uh, I did one interview with Chris Barron, which is probably the worst interview I've done in my life, uh, where he sort of basically crucified me for that. But what I was trying to explain was that we, we could make positions on principle, but it really wasn't for us to decide who should lead the ANC and who the ANC should make their president. We weren't in the ANC. We weren't of the ANC. Our contribution, I mean, actually, strategically, I think the more people outside of the ANC demanded for Zuma to go, the, the more it strengthened his power base inside the organization. So th that's a strategic. But, you know, for me, it was more, much more fundamental. We didn't want to be a proto-political party, a pretend political party. We wanted to actually talk about corruption deeply and not only limited to the ANC. And it's still my sadness, by the way, that the people who were so emphatic about what the ANC's done, and they've done very bad things, are silent about the Steinhoffs of this world and the Tongots of this world. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, you know, where does the money come from to pay bribes? It comes out of the pockets of the private sector. We also were trying to spend time to say, what does a truly transformed business do? And we developed thoughts about, uh, about what it is, about debt, about transport, about education, about skills, uh, about growing the talent of real managers and entrepreneurs, and not simply looking for well-known faces to put on boards <laughs> from dynastic ANC families. Uh, so that were, that those were the debates we were having inside of the organization. They weren't particularly public and couldn't be public. But I think they were important debates. And if I look at where business leadership is now with its current CEO, I think they're playing an incredibly positive and powerful role. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Do you think that if Harry Oppenheimer is 
upstairs yes. looking down on us now and uh, and he would believe that he'd made a good choice by pulling you through Alex Borain out of out of Natal University into the Anglo fold? I, 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 I can't f- for a moment answer that question. I, I think if I might be pompous, <laughs> uh, a more important question is that he ended his life, his long life, much more hopeful about South Africa than negative. And that's where his family is. And for me, that's, that's the real test. And, you know, of course it is true that, you know, you can go class half empty, half full, or I prefer the Martin Luther King quote, we, we certainly aren't where we want to be, and hopefully we aren't where we're going to be, but thank God we aren't where we were. I mean, the apartheid society was a profoundly immoral, uh, obscene society, which made it impossible to be a decent person if you were white because you had privileges, in a sense, imposed on you by the very race structure of the society. I mean, I recall when we first moved to Parkhurst, we used to walk around and we used to watch the police stopping black domestic workers with small kids and checking if their kids were older than two years because the past laws required somebody older than two years to go back to (laughs) the homelands. Now, that's where we've come from, Alec. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, that, that most sensible people, and I would emphatically include the Oppenheimer family in this, say, hallelujah, thank God that we aren't there. That doesn't mean them, that they're not critical of where we are now. Uh, I mean, the, the theft of COVID-related <laughs> relief, it, and I think it's going to be uh, one of those uh, tipping points in our society and in the ANC. And indeed, I think we're, we're, we're seeing a, a much tougher line from the ANC and indeed from the, the National Prosecuting Authority about, about sending people to steal things to jail. And that needs to happen and has to happen. I guess maybe uh, just to, to, to round off on that point, it's very interesting to see how the Oppenheimer children yes. have developed and grown, and yes. particularly Mary uh, yes. in, in yes. the contribution that she made to the COVID crisis and, and something close to my heart in horse racing, which no, she's, she's actually gone and rescued. Uh, exactly. And, you know, this, the, the, there's a Jessica. And, you know, it is interesting how genes, because Mary's been a very prominent race person, but Mary's mother <laughs> was really, I would call her the queen of South oh, African Bridget was, for sure. Racing, mm-hmm. you see. And uh, in Jessica, I just see Bridget. Uh, but, you know, actually, they're all here. And if you think of people living through very traumatic societies, whether it's Nazi Germany <laughs> or the Second World War, uh, whatever, to simply stay and to try to live out your values as, as well as you can, acknowledging that you're not going to achieve everything and you're not going to have clean hands in doing it. I think that's, that to me is courage. When you look around at fellow South Africans and the, the deep despair yes. that is everywhere to be seen, Yes. How do you feel about your decision to follow the role that you have? Yes. Well, look, I must tell you, my, my own decision, I simply have got to look at my kids, uh, three daughters, all in Johannesburg, all of them living lives that, honestly, like they could not possibly live uh, anywhere else. Uh, my three daughters, by the way, went to good government high schools, Parktown Girls, two of them, and uh, Greenside, the third, who didn't want to be with her sisters and did want to be with boys. Now, 
uh, my wife spoke at a Parktown uh, girls' valediction ceremony about 10 days ago. This school with over a thousand kids, more than 200 in matric, you know, it's got a demography that is absolutely South African. <laughs> it's got, you know, kids winning academic, cultural, and sporting prizes that you can't infer from their ethnicity. And it's, it's maintained a kind of Parktown ethos of rounded excellence, of solidarity. I mean, with COVID, they immediately started a fund to make sure that every kid in the school had both a, a digital device and data. Now, that's the kind of South Africa that can be built and uh, will be built in time. And so... Will be built in time. Will so be built. So you, you remain convinced that oh, no, it's going indeed. to happen. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a distinction. You, you, you know, I mean, here, of course, I come across people who are filled with gloom and doom. They're mostly but not exclusively white. <laughs> I've come across some black friends who are buying houses in Mauritius, and good luck to them. What I do ask, I mean, I've been very fortunate from Anglo Gold itself, then to Eskom, then to, uh, I mean, I've, I've spent the last nine, year, nine years on the IDC board, which is a fantastic organization, again, a board that is predominantly black women and exceptionally able black women. If you live a, in a little bubble of whiteness <laughs> and elite whiteness, where it's all private schools, and it's all uh, gated communities, and it's all overseas holidays, <laughs> then it's not surprising that you pick up Northern Hemisphere attitudes towards the country in which you live. And th that part of our elite, I think, is a, is a disconnected one. And we see disconnected elites, by the way, in other countries as well. So do you holiday purposefully in the country? Yes, absolutely. We've got a bush house, which is just wonderful. It's a two-hour drive. It's not malarial. And you just go there and you realize this is why God chose to bring you to this place. And, uh, yeah, it's not just it, – it, it's a preponderance. I mean, I, I think both my wife and I and my kids have got uh, friendship groups that are diverse enough and gender diverse enough to just make it impossible – for us to talk about they, they are doing this and they are doing that, <laughs> to, to stereotype and uh, also to give us joy because, you know, at the base of the society, if you look at the way South Africa has responded to COVID and the solidarity that we've found and the, generally speaking, the compliance of ordinary people with just being sensible, I think it's spectacular. You know, if you're living in the society, then your hope for the future will be fed daily. If you've carved out for yourself a sort of, I don't know, a, a, a sort of Capetonian exit. You're in trouble now. <laughs> then, then you will pay, a, well, you'll pay a price for the choices that you've made. I think we all do. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. You know Cyril Ramaphosa very well, having negotiated against him. There yeah. is, a, there is a, almost a, a national mood when... Ramaphosa is in favor. South Africans yeah. get excited when he's, he moves out of favor. There's the opposite uh, yeah. effect. Right now, he's been tarred with a similar brush to Zuma. Yeah. In your experience, is that fair? Well, just allow me to, 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 to say something a little different before I answer your question directly. You know, one of the biggest learning experiences of my life 
is that very few important things in life depend entirely on individuals. Certainly individuals matter, but individuals work collectively. And if, if, if I take my intense experience with Cyril Ramaphosa was, of course, in the gold mining industry. Now, he was completely critical in our being able to negotiate and manage conflict. But on the other hand, when it came to, I mean, I, I think of a really innovative wage deal where we said we couldn't raise wages except if we increased productivity, and so the wage link was linked absolutely literally to productivity. I mean, for every percentage increase, we had to get an extra ton of gold in the case of Anglo gold. Now, that deal, Cyril couldn't sell. Cyril was not actually a natural miner. <laughs> Cyril relied on people like James Mutlatsi and Elijah Bachai to be speaking to the, the group of 5,000. On the other hand, without Cyril, uh, th there's no way we would have got to the productivity. Uh, so you've got to see people in context, and that is the way that I, I, I see him. I, journalists have got plenty of stupid phrases, but they've got a, occasionally some good phrases. So talking about him playing the long game is a good phrase. He, he took over a profoundly divided, I mean a, a factionalized, more or less at war with itself, ANC. And so he needed to go through a period of consolidating his power within the ANC. I think the most recent events, uh, for example, the, the issue of... Um, ANC leaders not doing business with government, uh, of ANC uh, people uh, standing down when there's a, a, a serious suggestion of malfeasance uh, and uh, giving up their membership when they're convicted of a crime. I mean, th these, are, these are big steps. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think this is an indication of his coming power. I mean, I, I think he can't do it alone. Uh, having said this, I mean, I, I'm, I've never voted for the ANC. I'm not an ANC person. Uh, I, my tradition is from the Progressive Party through more or less to the, the Democratic uh, Alliance. But, you know, what I would love to see happen right now is a government of national unity. I think COVID itself, but even more importantly, building a new 21st century economy that is both profitable and inclusive, it goes way beyond the wisdom of any one political tradition in South Africa. And, you know, I wish we could choose our cabinet from the best people from without reference to political uh, affiliation. And I think we need a, a government of national... I mean, I believe in competitive elections, but between the elections, I think parliamentarians should work together to solve the problems of the country. Isn't that what was tried in 1994? Yes, it was. And, you know, uh, who, who is the person who walked out? F.W. de Klerk after two years. Now, I, I'm not for, for a moment saying that he didn't have any reason. <laughs> he was obviously quite grumpy, and he didn't particularly like the new constitution in 96, which was the two-year period. But yeah, you know, I, I think this, this requires graciousness on the part of the ANC. And look, the, 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 there's a little bit of identity politics that remains to, to be realized in South Africa, and this is well captured by words. You know, it, it's still true that most white South Africans would see themselves as South Africans. Most black South Africans would see themselves as Africans. And indeed, the, in politics, the word African is mainly used as a synonym for black, although we have, going back to, from the foundation of the ANC through to Thabo Mbeki's great speech, I am an African, a tradition that says very clearly 
that the country belongs to all who live in it. I would just add, by the way, and who love it. <laughs> so, but, you know, the black-white question isn't yet settled. Uh, not all whites have come to the party. Not all blacks are, are ready to embrace uh, white South Africans fully uh, as, as Africans. And that's, that's kind of work in progress. But, I mean, wow, when you think about the relatively short time from, you know, the police in Parkhurst inquiring over the two-year-old and sending them back to the to the homelands, uh, we haven't done too badly. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio. Cheerio.